a privilege, it's a joy to be with you to share God's Word, um, to preach from it. Uh, it's been nice to be welcomed back as well as a family, um, so thank you all. Just That's my personal thanks to you. And by the way, congratulations on the plaque with the float. Like really, that's a big deal. That's a bigger deal than a lot of you think. And I really want to commend you in that because, you know, we see signs that say, keep Christ in Christmas. But when you go to a Christmas parade and you depict Christ and then you hand out tracts explaining the Lordship of Christ and he as Savior, you're doing that. You are, you are actually doing that as a church. And what a cool testimony that you had the best flow too. So do it again next year. And uh, that's just really cool. So uh, I'm going to be preaching from 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you'd like to turn there, I'm going to read the first 13 verses, and I'm really only preaching on one verse, but I want to build out the context for us, because that's as critical to our understanding of that one verse is the preceding 12, uh, so we don't want to miss those. So this is the word of God from the second letter of Paul to Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I might be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Verse 13, our key verse for this morning, follow the pattern of sound words that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Let me pray. God, now I pray that you would open my mouth to proclaim the mysteries of your commandments to us in the gospel, that it would become alive in our hearts, that we would be obedient from the heart by the power of the Spirit, as Paul has just laid out for us. And I pray that we would be willing hearers and active doers of what we find in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I set this up, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever thought about the material cause by which Christianity and the gospel and the kingdom of God advances. I'm not gonna, this is the heaviest thing you'll hear sort of structurally, and I'm gonna lay it right out there. Play, or Aristotle had four causes 
of th how things happen, what causes a thing to happen if I were to push this pulpit over, you know, what causes that. Uh, there's th the material cause is the one that actually drives the thing going forward. And we in Christianity are often very good at recognizing what the principal cause is or the formal cause, and that is that the kingdom advances because God is doing it. We agree on that, right? The kingdom advances because God advances it. But sometimes we don't recognize the material cause. What are the things that happen that cause the advance of that same kingdom, that same gospel? And they're different because God's spirit, we're just told, empowers us and guards what has been given to us. But then also there are commandments to us that form the material cause. The, the things that actually we do in this world by the power of the spirit are the things that drive forward the kingdom in a very real sense, not to diminish God's power, but actually to bring it to life. Jesus said very plainly, you are my hands and my feet. And so though the church we recognize is eternally invincible, it can never be thwarted, it can never be undermined. It's always enduring generation to generation. But the local church differs and varies in its strength, its potency, its faithfulness, and even its, even its existence. When you look at the churches that existed in the book of Revelation in the first four chapters, many of them are not with us today. So the local church ebbs and flows depending on its observance of foundational commandments and patterns and habits. And one of those things we find in this text in verse 13 today is one of the underestimated and sadly undermaintained disciplines of the modern church. And that is of our speech. What are the words that we use? What are the patterns of words that we use to instruct our children, to minister to one another, to preach the word as Lucas does every Sunday? What are the words we use to rebuke and to build in this life. So the header here across Paul's final letter to his apprentice, who is Timothy, is this. Retain the standard of sound words. This is a different translation I studied out of the New Revised, I think. Retain the standard, which I actually prefer to the uh, English standard this morning, which is to follow the pattern of sound words. I studied and retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. This is not a sermon about or rebuking crude or unbecoming language. This is not a sermon about tidying up your speech etiquette. There's, a, there's an important sermon for that we have in the Ten Commandments. Uh, not to misuse or blaspheme the name of God. That's a very critical aspect of who we are. But in the context of what Paul is teaching to Timothy, that would be too shallow an application. We're not just talking about having sweet speech this morning. We're talking about the stakes uh, that, are, that are in front of us for the pattern of words that we follow. Where do we get our words? Where do we get our speech? Paul says, follow the standard, retain the standard. And the context here is what brings to life this commandment. This letter is written to Timothy. 
Timothy's a young pastor who has been left behind to pastor a new church plant. His mentor, who is also the author of the majority of the New Testament, has written this letter from jail. Okay, so Lucas, not to put too fine a point on it, is a young pastor left behind to pastor a new church plant. I am not the Apostle Paul, nor am I anywhere near it, nor am I in jail. But you can imagine, I want you to be in Timothy's shoes for a minute, and you're getting your instruction from your mentor who's in jail for doing the very things that he's now telling you to do. And he's saying, follow me. Do what I've done. Say what I've done. What is it like for Timothy to lead a church when the man he's modeling has been put in prison for doing so? The cultural shift in Canada has moved very quickly from dismissing and sort of ignoring Christianity to overtly persecuting it in a very short amount of time. So the context of this, we can relate to 100% more than we could in even October of 2019. I just wanna put that out there because you're not crazy for thinking it. It's true, it's happening. And that shift has been rapid and forceful and definitive and lasting. And that has a dramatic effect on how we read this text, on how we obey this text. Look at verse eight. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Paul's commandment to retain this standard stands in resistance to the way we respond to pressure. There's a temptation to be ashamed of not only the testimony that we've been given, but also our friends who are already suffering for the same thing that we believe. Our friends, our family who are already out there being bold and taking arrows from the culture, how do we relate to them? That's the acid test for how you are gonna obey this scripture is how do you relate to those who are already branded a public enemy for Christ, for the testimony of Jesus Christ? How do you think of those people and how do those people come up in your conversations, ones who are already culturally toxic for what you believe and maybe it hasn't got out yet? The, the, the best example of this in scripture that I can find is Peter. Peter went from, I'll die with you, Jesus, to, I've never heard of the man, in 24 hours. Because a servant girl came up to him and said, didn't I see you with Jesus? He couldn't handle the pressure. After Jesus was arrested, that immediately changed how Peter, how willing he was to stand for Jesus publicly. He said, I'll die with you. And then a girl, maybe Wynne or Mila's age, came up to him and said, didn't I see you? Never heard of him. What a warning. What a warning to us to see Peter. And, and Paul is right now trying to pull Timothy back from that temptation. To fight the urge to distance ourselves from other Christians or doctrines that are under attack. Before we can effectively carry out Paul's command here, we need a good old-fashioned gut check. Can you just bear down and grin 
when others are shaming you or threatening you for the gospel of Christ? Can you just take it? Uh, very quickly, a few years ago when the Alberta pastor James Coates went to jail, um, obviously it was a very contentious time with holding church services when the authorities said that we couldn't. And I, I tried to call a meeting with all the pastors in Smith Falls and Perth and I said, Whatever you think of his stance on COVID, we should agree that a pastor being in jail for holding a worship service ought to trouble us as Canadian pastors. And I said, so let's have a Zoom prayer meeting. I didn't even call it in person. And out of 11 pastors, I got one person willing to pray for James Coates. And these are pastors that I knew to be committed to prayer. I thought, what a perfect opportunity to bridge some of our differences and just pray for a pastor in jail. Why wouldn't they? Because the shame of James Coates culturally was too hot for them, for people to find out that they might possibly be associated with somebody who is so nationally scorned for what he did. So just a little example there. We are, it's a plague that infects the modern evangelical church. It's a condition of lust for respect from the world, from all the wrong people. And Paul is very concerned to save Timothy from this infection. And it's on my heart to inoculate you as well as my family against that infection. Being faithful to Jesus Christ has a lot more to do with our gut and our spine than maybe we realize. Uh, another quick example of this, when, when Shannon and I first decided that we weren't going to put masks on our children in, a, in stores, um, it's an example from a few years ago, but it's always stuck with me because God taught us a lot through that time. And this is not a story about masks, but about what people think of us because at first, my then eight-year-old daughter, Wynn, was very concerned that people would be looking at our family really weird. When we went into a store without masks on, people, she said, I don't want people looking at us. And I, I said to Wynn, well, this is what we believe we ought to be doing. And so, yes, they are gonna look at us and yes, they are gonna think we're weird. Let's not make any bones about that. But what an opportunity it was to teach my children to feel that pressure and to feel that shame and just to get on with it anyway. What an opportunity for all of us in, in our lives to feel that awkwardness and then just to do it anyway. And so this is what Paul is saying to Timothy, don't be ashamed of me just because I'm in jail. Don't shy away from knowing me. Don't, don't scribble my name out of you know, your church bulletin just because I'm in jail already. So our public witness and our obedience to this commandment, the whole point of this context is that it doesn't happen in a vacuum. We cannot win this battle in our founding documents, in our statement of faith or on our website. This is not an, a commandment that we can obey just by having our doctrine all lined up in a row. It's about what happens when somebody calls you up and says, I heard you go to that church. I heard your pastor said this. What do you believe about marriage? What do you believe about education? What do you believe about gender and children? That's where this battle is won. Because that's when the butterflies start happening and the fingers start shaking and the voice starts trembling. Right? So Paul says, in light of that context, not to be ashamed or distance yourself from those who are standing for Jesus. He says, retain the standard or follow the pattern of sound words. The pattern of our words as Christians 
is the backbone that contains the DNA or the forecast of our effectiveness in God's kingdom. It's kind of like ground zero. It's, it's your initial compass bearing when you're setting out on a journey. Your words are that critical first starting point, that discipline, that foundation that determines where we will go as Christians. The main verb is the main command. The main, the main verb here is to retain, to grab hold of and not to let go, not to let it shift. In an earthquake, when the vases start rattling on the shelf, you grab them and you retain them so they don't shimmy off and shatter on the floor. To grab hold and to hold fast. And we are, as Paul has reminded us in other places, in a spiritual war against evil, against the schemes of Satan and the the present dark age. And in your war, your sacred territory is language. And your weapons are words. And I'm not trying to get you to think carnally. I'm trying to marry our conviction that the church will last. The church is invincible. God does not need us. But by the same token, if we have been called, how do we fit into that plan? So I'm I'm not saying any of this apart from the power of God and the spirit of God, but I'm saying we need to be active in the commandments that are going to achieve these things. Every other fight that you face, whether you're on a church board or a school board or you you are at a Christmas party with a lot of people who don't like what you believe or whether you're educating your children at home or whether you're interacting with a school board, every fight and confrontation that you face will be determined by your understanding of this fight to retain sound words. It will be determined by this starting point. I'll bring in another analogy. What Paul is doing here is a pre-flight inspection on our bombers. Okay, we're walking around the aircraft and Paul is pointing out the critical parts of the plane. So if you're flying a bomber, it's important that it stays in the air. But if you're going to drop your bomb, the doors have to open, right? If the doors don't open, then you're just a seagull ready to get shot down. So Paul is saying, hey, right here, in case you lose hydraulic pressure, this is the failsafe for the bomb door. You kick that open and your payload drops. Paul is saying, this is where they're going to attack. This is your spot that's going to make you an effective Christian and leader and husband and wife and soldier for Christ. And the way they're going to attack here is by exploiting your shame, by exploiting your tendency, your desire to be liked. Every age and culture has a pattern of words deemed sound or healthy or good. Every culture has it. Everybody has a standard of words that they say, these are the good words. I'm going to bring another analogy in in here for you that's been very helpful to me. There's a window. Imagine a window out of which you can see. And what you can see inside that window in terms of language is what our culture says These are the words you're allowed to use. This is what's acceptable speech for interacting with ideas or or, or talking to people about your beliefs. There are certain words that are off limits. They're outside the window. And there are other words that are inside the window that you're allowed to use. And depending on the religious commitments of a culture, that window shifts. And it leaves behind some words and new words come into it. It moves. And I'll I'll make that more real for you in just a minute. 
but it's a window that shifts back and forth. And so when the window of acceptable speech in a culture, the pattern of words shifts away from Christian foundations, Christian words will no longer be welcome in public discourse. So they at one time in my early childhood decided, well, prayer is no longer an acceptable pattern of speech for public education. So it gets, pops out the window and the, move, and the window just keeps moving. It happens all the time. It's fluid and, and there's a battle for that window. There's people on both sides of the frame pulling. And that's why Paul commands Timothy to retain it, to lock his arm around it and not to budge when people start pulling that window of what you're allowed to say away from what Christ gave us, what Paul handed down to us. And you know what? Here's the weak part. Here's the weak link. We're humans. We're social creatures. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted in our circles of coworkers or the sports team our kids are on. We want to be liked. Parliament, there may be a lot of people in Parliament that agree with you on very foundational issues, but it's hard to be in that social circle or professional circle and say the things that they really believe. So it's hard to retain language that brings us shame and scorn, scorn and rebuke or harassment. If you think of an old church building, you'll see it along its length, you'll see buttresses that are kind of a big stone outcropping from the side of the wall. They're buttresses and they're on both sides of the length of the building because the roof, when there's a roof load of snow, it wants to push the top of the ridge down and the walls will buckle out. Sometimes you'll see old houses where the walls do this because there's not buttresses holding firm those walls. This is what Paul is saying. The, the buttresses there are the words. Paul also said to Timothy that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth in the world. So if language is going to be preserved in our culture, who's going to do it? Us. That's the exciting part. We don't have to petition the government to use the words um, that we think they ought to use. Um, we, it starts with us. And there are forces pressing upon us. There's a snow load on the church that is testing the resolve of those buttresses. And that boundary is where Christian doctrine meets the world's rebellion. Where those two things collide, that's where the pressure is to move away from biblical language, to blur that edge, to make it a little easier to continue in rebellion. I, I was saying that the, 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 the battle for that window, I want to make very real for you in just a minute here, and just right here, because there's three places at least from which this pressure comes upon us. And again, this is why Paul is saying to Timothy, retain, because he knows there are pressures. He knows there are social expectations. He knows there may be even laws in place that make this difficult. And so I just want to walk through three brief areas where this pressure comes from. Number one has to do with people that we love. We want to keep our social standing or our reputation with people that we love, right? We don't want to let down people we love. We don't want to be thought weird or actually kicked out of a circle that we've loved for a long time. Your book club, your knitting club, you know, your, po your poker buddies, people we love. And you realize in conversation, if I say what I really think, I'm not going to be invited back. They're going to distance themselves from me. 
I might be saying goodbye to old familiar friends. So there, that's, that's a pressure that we face because we love people and we want to be near them. Number two has to do with people we don't necessarily love, but who might have power over us. Fear of consequences. There are maybe inclusive policies at work where if you say something in a casual conversation that has to do with God's standards for marriage or family or any other thing, even fiscal policy, um, that these were actually fall afoul of your workplace work, uh, policies. The HR department, you don't want to get a call from them because of a conversation you had in the lunchroom. You might have a new pronoun um, policy that you need to put in your work signature, in your email signature. These are very real issues people are facing that are challenging you in what you're willing to hold on to. How much of the Christian faith are you willing to keep your fingers firmly gripped around when the world comes and says, you need to include this, you need to speak like this, and you can't say that. Number three, there are real world legal restrictions. Again, these are things I couldn't have said three years ago in a sermon. Bill C-4, I've talked about it, you've heard about it, maybe. It's the bill that has uh, outlawed so-called conversion therapy, but if you look in the preamble of this law, it states that natural biology of male and female sexuality is a myth, and that it's a myth that needs to be discouraged and denounced to protect human dignity. That's a quote from the law. So the speech patterns from Genesis chapter one are now officially in our criminal code declared myth, and it's a myth that ought to be discouraged and denounced to protect human dignity. And by the way, they're not just discouraging and denouncing it with announcements, they're discouraging and denouncing it with prison time. So are there pressures to change our speech? Hard pressures. And by the way, this law, Bill C-4, doesn't just pop up out of nowhere. It takes a long time of social conditioning so that at first you're feeling those pressures in your workplace before a law ever comes along. A law like this doesn't just come out of the clear blue sky. It comes from years of shifting that window and shifting that window and shifting that window to the point where it makes perfect sense to make it illegal to say what used to be normal. You can find interviews of Barack Obama saying a marriage is between a man and a woman. That's how fast that window shifts. So it happens. There are real pressures. Timothy faced pressures in his day. These are the pressures we face in our day against retaining the standard of sound speech. And again, so where does that public correction come from? It comes from you and me and our pastors over coffee in the news, when the paper calls you, Lucas, for a statement on X, Y, or Z, these are real places where we will offer the truth and we will retain the standard. <clears throat> I, want to, uh, I just mentioned Lucas, because um, he's gonna be here next week and I won't. The command to the pastor in particular is critical because every week Lucas is redefining the window for you. Every weekend when Lucas prays his prayers, when he preaches his scriptures, that's your cue. This is what biblical language is. This is how a Christian should think and talk. And I want to commend you, Lucas, because in your 
praying for Justin Trudeau, you are using scriptural language and categories. Does God store up wrath for those who abuse their callings? Absolutely. And we ought not to shy away from that reality. And so Lucas every week is painting that for you to remind you after you come in from the blowing wind of that pressure, you're coming back here every week to say, yes, this is our center. This is the truth. This is the gospel. This is the Lordship of Christ. These are the words we use. Which brings us to our next portion of the passage. Retain the pattern of what? What are we retaining? We're not just fighting for the sake of fighting. We're retaining what? Sound words. Sound words. Speech. Teaching. Discourse. Conversation. The heart and soul of the human experience is words. This is not just one random thing that you can get into or not. The heart and soul of the human experience is words because every thought that we have is limited by and shaped by the words that are available to us. Have you ever thought about the fact that you think in the language that you speak? You think in real words. You can hear your voice and it's called an inner monologue and you think about things, you process ideas in the real world based on the words that you have available to you. So the very foundation of our thinking is built upon what words do we know? What speech patterns do we have? And so when we foster right speech, we are fostering right thinking. And your power to do good or to lead people in the truth is only as strong as the words you have to conceptualize those things. And I think these are the stakes that Paul is getting at when you look at his command to Timothy. Everything starts here. Everything starts here. Paul implies a contrast here because he's, he's not just saying retain words, just be a wordy people, just be chatty. He says, retain the pattern of sound words. That word also means healthy. Sound, like a, like a floorboard that you step on and your foot doesn't go through. So we're, we're fighting the drift against unsound, corrupt, debased, deceptive, or impotent talk, or powerless talk. There's, there's, there's a set of words that are sound and healthy and truthful, and then there are words that are corrupt and deceptive and unclear. Paul says, you need to go with the first group. Take those strong words from Scripture, those strong categories of thought. I want to ask you this. Are there Christian convictions or issues that you have and you hold them staunchly but you're afraid to explain them to your children plainly because you're afraid that they'll repeat it somewhere where it's not welcome because kids don't have the same shame as us I know that feeling I don't want to explain everything as fully to my children as I know they can handle and understand because what if somebody finds out that's what our family believes? Paul says, and so there's a temptation with our children to give them words that are unsound, to give them categories that are unsound, that are ultimately gonna corrupt how they see the world. Don't do that. Teach them social moments where it's appropriate and not, but don't give them lousy words. Don't give them worldly words. Give them the 90 proof, and then just teach them when it's okay to use them and with whom.
Your children are sponges. They are learning how to interact with this world from you. And I think we've been more infected with this shame than we're ready to admit. And I put myself in that category too. Actually, because my friend Mike Thiessen does a lot of work with the media, he gets calls from like the Washington Post and Fox News to give a statement on this or that. And he'll often email me and say, I need a statement for this, Tim, to put my name on. And uh, so I'll write an article, I'll write an answer for him. And um, one of my blurbs made it into the, um, as a headline for Fox News one time. Now it was Mike saying it, but I wrote it. And you know what he said to me? He said, Tim, when you're writing for me, your language is like a whip cracking that I'm terrified to get near. And he said, you need to write like that when you're speaking. And that hit me hard because I realized I can say whatever I want when Mike's, if, if Mike's gonna take the bullets for this, I don't care. I'll say it as clearly and as decisively as I can. But when I'm speaking on my behalf, am I softening it at all? Because I'm worried about the consequences. That hit home to me. So I, I know we can all be energized by this call to stop caring. Um, okay, that was out of my notes, but it, I thought it was a good way to illustrate that I need to learn this too. Uh, so when we're looking into scriptures, we're not just looking for words, but we're looking for categories for engaging ideas, to put them into action. Where there are clear words, there is a refreshing clarity that paints everything more starkly. What a joy it is for someone to explain something who understands it so deeply and is so unencumbered, so unhindered by a need to be liked that they just lay it out clearly for you. They're not so terrified of qualifying and being misunderstood that they just lay it out for you. How refreshing is that? The pattern here of sound words is a rich and diverse spectrum of speech. So again, I'm not just talking about be more polite, be likable, say and say it in a way that you just know is not going to offend people because that doesn't fit the brief. That fails the brief that Paul is giving us. Our culture doesn't just lean on social pressure because as I just mentioned, certain sins are protected now from exposure to the light by hate speech laws. So sound speech is becoming increasingly not only socially unpopular, but criminal. Now, I don't just want to throw the world under the bus. You shouldn't be naive. You're going to find some of those pressures from within the church. There are naysayers in the church that are going to tone police you if Lucas goes out and gives a statement to a paper that's unambiguous about family or unambiguous about Christ in some way. You're going to get calls at your, at your work, next workplace meeting. Hey, don't you go to that church? Don't, isn't that you? And they're going to come to Luke and say, Lucas, I don't like how you said that. Because now everyone's mad at me. So we're going to get pressure from within the church as well because we're all looking over our shoulders and wondering who, who's going to fire the next arrow at me. But if you look at Galatians, it's a one-stop shop for lessons when Paul is addressing enemies from outside and inside the church. It, it, in the same book, he attacks the Judaizers who are insisting that you need to become circumcised. And Paul says of them, actually, the, the actual translation, I can't say in front of all your children. 
But Paul basically says of the people who says you have to be circumcised, he says, I wish they'd cut the whole thing off. That's not super polite, but it's how Paul addressed those who are corrupting the church of God. And then a couple chapters later, he says, Peter, when the Judaizers came, Peter became a hypocrite. So I stood and opposed him to his face in front of everybody because he was a hypocrite. Harsh language for like the chief apostle, right? This is all included in the spectrum and the pattern of sound speech that we've been handed. These are some sharp words, yes. But in times of compromise where lies are polluting the truth, it isn't always, it isn't always sufficient to be as polite as many demand. In fact, politeness is often demanded as a tool to cloud or obscure the truth. Politeness is often demanded from outside and inside the church in order to cloud an issue that they would rather remain cloudy. So I just need to take a minute here to give a disclaimer because, oh, here comes Tim. He's a guest preacher. He can be as harsh and, you know, uh, outlandish as he can be. And then Lucas has to clean up all the mess once you guys all start using, you know, biblical categories. Tim likes the serrated edge. Tim likes harsh speech. Tim likes to take down his enemies publicly. I won't necessarily deny that. However, in my defense, if you look at the church today, is our sin today in the church being too clear and too harsh against evil? Or is our sin that we've become ashamed of the truth of the gospel, we've become ashamed of the consequences of believing what we believe, and actually we're way too soft? I think it's the latter. I was in a seminar on, <clears throat> on uh, LGBTQ with a pastor this past summer, and he spent the whole time preaching to a church that doesn't exist anymore. He said the church has to stop being so harsh and condemning and unloving towards LGBT people. And I was like, I don't know what church he's talking about. I don't know any churches like that. It's a sin of the past that we no longer struggle with. We're no longer too judgy against that sin. What, what has happened is we've become compromisers on, on being truthful and we've adopted a bunch of language that blurs the lines where Christ has drawn them starkly. So... That's my defense for this is why we need to hear it because I think we're all much more like a timid Timothy than we are a firebranding Paul or Ezekiel. And so as our speech goes, so goes our institution. And so as a church, as a people, who you fear, whom you fear, will determine what words you use and who you are protecting in your speech. So, Example, if you fear the rebuke of God's enemies, your words are gonna to soften toward them, right? That's how that works. Whoever you fear the backlash from, that's who you're gonna tailor your speech to please. And which direction are you gonna start shifting the window? Toward God-hating pagans, okay? So that's an issue. You're gonna normalize their worldview in your circles. If you're preaching to make sure nobody ever rebukes you from the world, you're polluting and downgrading the speech in your church. But if you fear alienating the faithful, then your words are gonna fortify and build up and strengthen the troops. 
Another way of saying it is preach to your base. Fire up your base. Give them what they need. Compromisers will attack you for language that is clear or angular or divisive. And when I say divisive, I mean discerning between what is pleasing to God and what is evil to God. Compromisers will attack you and say, that's not, that's not that simple. Simple doesn't mean easy. Simple often denotes something that is hard. This flows from the fountain of our worldview that we believe everything in the world falls under two authorities. Either you're under Christ or you're under Satan. There is no middle ground. And when you see the world the way the Bible describes it, it becomes easier to speak into issues. So Paul says, follow, retain the pattern against the pressure, follow the sound words that the scripture gives you. Where is the source of those words that you heard from me? We have the source of those words. We are drawing as Christians from the foundation laid by the apostles and the prophets. Ephesians 2.20 says, as a church, you are following the foundation of the prophets and apostles. We are not a New Testament only church. We, we, we don't just draw from some sanctified or sterilized version of Jesus where he didn't do anything confrontational or say anything confrontational. Paul says, you are drawing from the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Again, this is to attack the lie of our day that we live in enlightened times. We've moved beyond that kind of barbaric language of sodomite and blasphemy and heretic. We don't use those words anymore. We have, we have social words to describe people's conditions. So Paul says, no, 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 go back to the old path. Go back to the foundation that you've been given as from the prophets and apostles. The scripture gives us very clear words on the exaltation and lordship of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of Old Testament expectation, what his earthly ministry was like, his deity, his present and practical authority over life. Here's just a really super simple example. Jesus never spoke against homosexuality. That's challenging your window right there. Oh, darn, yeah, he never said the word homosexual in his ministry. What did, what did he do? He echoed Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God made them male and female. So you need to know your Bibles. You need to know the life of Christ. You need to know where he will be attacked. The Bible also gives us categories for the confrontation of sin. Jesus said to the church in Thyatira, I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So you're a good church. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. All of us have tolerated evil infiltrating the, our thinking and in the church in some way. And Jesus says, get rid of it. And the scriptures also give us the order and purpose and character of the visible church. There are verses that we come to in our day and age that naturally make us bristle. I do not promote, permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. Ooh, like duck. There are, there are passages that make us bristle. That's the shame that Paul is saying, forget about that, doesn't matter. God's word is God's word. Fly it loud and proud. What about blasphemy? What about sodomy, theft, rebellion, unholiness, profanity, liars, murderers? We have a shyness or a hesitancy to follow the pattern because our words are in such contrast to the evils that are going on in the world. 
Lucas read of Cain killing Abel. Jesus said to his hearers of the day, you love managing your public perceptions, don't you? He said to the Pharisees, you love to stand in the streets and you love to honor the tombs of the prophets. And you love to say, if we had lived in those days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood. They loved the honor of dead prophets. But how many are willing to stand with the prophet in his day? When he's the only one standing, when he is challenging all the taboos and social um, axioms of the day. How many are willing to say, I'm with that weirdo? You have that uncle or that friend who's just always constantly talking in really clear biblical language and you're always a little bit cringing? That's the guy you need to follow because he's forgotten about being embarrassed. I love those guys. Those are the guys that fill my belly with fire. And so often we want to wait till the social shame dies away and then we want to go decorate their tombs. I was, I, no. Jesus said, just like Cain hated Abel for his righteousness, so we are tempted to do that for those who bring embarrassment upon us. Finally, why do we do this? Why do we do this? Verse 13, in the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ, we do it because Christ is our savior, because he's our king, because he redeemed us. He's our lamb. He's our eternal life. He's our righteousness. He's our interceder and our high priest. It's to obey him. It's not to please Paul. It's not to please your grandpa. It's not to please Lucas. It's not to own the libs. It's to obey Jesus Christ, to, to follow and to further and pursue and maintain his kingdom and to exalt his ways and to fulfill our calling, to take up his commandments. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? He who obeys my commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called great in the kingdom of God. That's where we are. That's where we're headed. We want to be ready for it now when a lot of people left Jesus because his teaching was harsh in John chapter six, Jesus said, are you gonna leave also? And Peter wisely said, where else will we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. The watching world has long turned away from the church in any kind of interest or any kind of thought to, you know, please the man of the cloth or to curtail their behavior. In fact, you'll find there is an aggression against the church. The crowds have left. Will we? You alone have the words of eternal life, Peter said to Jesus. So I want to finish with a couple practical suggestions for retaining sound words in your city, in your town, in your family, and in your church. Four things. Number one, allow Christian categories, thinking, and descriptions to extend beyond theology proper. That is to make generic statements about universal truths. Take the concepts of scripture and cover over every issue with them. Go into areas that you're told you're not supposed to be. Take them into concepts that other Christians are going to say, oh, you're getting in the culture war now. Yes, we are. We're in a culture war. And our words are what capture a part of the culture for Christ. The vocabulary that gets used to describe things is a flag that's waving over territory that says, I own this. 
pronouns are a way, it's a flag saying there's no such thing as a binary gender. That's what pronouns are. It's a flag that says we own gender. When a Christian comes along and says, no, God owns that. Yes, it's a culture war, but it's capturing for Christ the idea and concept of sex and sexuality. We often unconsciously adopt the vocabulary from the world on issues where we ought to be the authority, not them. We unconsciously adopt worldly descriptions of things that we ought to be very clearly biblical about. Number two, stand by your pastor and pastors stand by your people. What do I mean by that? I mentioned it sort of earlier. Hey, isn't Evergreen Chapel the one where you guys believe this? Didn't your pastor, I saw him on the podcast and he said some stuff that's really, really bigoted. What's your reaction? Yeah, I'm super thankful my pastor's that clear. I love my pastor. I love the way he teaches. I love that he's that clear. Do you have a problem with that? Let me talk about it. Let's have coffee. And pastor, you might find people going into their workplaces and saying things that come back to you. Do you, do you know that your congregant said that? Do you know they went into a city hall meeting and they asked a question about X, Y, Z, anything you want, standing up for Christ in the public square. And they're gonna come back to you and say, you're not teaching them to say that, are you? Yes, I am. That's called being an armor bearer. That's called, I'm gonna give you the weapons to go fight and when it comes back to me, I'm gonna be ready to defend you. And so stand by each other because that shame is gonna be coming back around and they're gonna try to pit you against each other. Hey, your buddy said that, what do you think? Oh, I, oh no, I'm not like that. You know, I'm not so much a narrow-minded Christian. I'm like, uh, you know, I just, I think it's just a little more nuanced than that. That distancing ourselves from the shame. So stand by one another. Number three, be a verbally driven church, which includes the congregation. So recitation, reciting things, uh, repetition in your prayers in scripture, congregational readings and songs, um, confessions and creeds, Covenant renewal worship, that might be something new to you that I have found very, very helpful in making the church a verbal place where we are calling out to God together. Uh, singing psalms. A lot of you, I love that there's like old school reform people here who bring those psalms in and a lot of those melodies you don't recognize and you're struggling through it a little bit because it's not like a super easy Hillsong melody. You are digging the deep wells when you're doing that. Do not give up on that. Bring those psalms into your songs because they train your brain to think the way the Bible does. How we sing instructs how we retain sound words. So beautiful stuff, I love it. Number four, follow the pattern at home. Memorize and recite the 10 commandments. That's the easiest and smallest catechism you can find. Memorize the 10 commandments with your children or maybe as an adult, maybe you don't know them. Memorize a catechism, London 1689. Uh, you can get some easy um, Baptist catechism material from Tom Askell. You can go through that with your kids. It's, it's forming the thought patterns through sound words that Paul's commanding us to do. And we're retaining that by multiplying that. Sing songs at home. Sing Christian shanties. Sing a psalm if you can. Learn one and sing it with your kids at home around the dinner table. 
Be a verbally driven family in the sound things that God has given us and teach children in biblical categories. Prophecy, go to the wisdom literature, go through the Proverbs with them. The contrast is always there between wisdom and foolishness. Teach your children to train in those categories. And remember that you are free in Christ. Too often we feel slaves to the taste of the world. We feel slaves to our reputation. We are slaves to what people think of us. And worse, we're using the language of slaves. When Christ has freed us to speak on his behalf, he has given us the authority to speak on his behalf. We're taking up the patterns that are set by compromisers, those who wink at sin and speak in soft speech. We follow the speech codes that are set out by the Human Rights Commission instead of the Lord, the Word of God made flesh. Um, 1 Corinthians 14, 9 says, if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will ready themselves for battle? Clear speech is the call to war for the Christian. I'm gonna leave you with my favorite passage so far in the Narnia series um, by C.S. Lewis in The Horse and His Boy. Uh, there's a conversation happening where the horse, the talking horse is, is a free horse from Narnia and he's talking to his owner who's been a slave boy in, Tark, uh, in, um, in Tashban. And they're having this conversation and the horse remembers free Narnia and the boy hasn't been there yet. And the Tizrock is like the emperor of the day. And if you ever mention the Tizrock's name, you have to say, may he live forever to show your allegiance to him. So the horse is talking and he says, my Tarkan is on his way north to that great city, to Tashban itself and to the court of the Tizrock. I say, put in Shasta in a rather shocked voice, ought you to say, may he live forever? Why? asked the horse. I'm a free Narnian. And why should I talk fool's talk and slave's talk? I don't want him to live forever. And I know that he's not going to live forever, whether I want him to or not. And I can see that you are from the free north too. No more of this southern jargon between you and me. Now back to our business. No more of this southern jargon between Christians. No more of this slave's talk and fool's talk. We are free in Christ and we've been given the words of eternal life and we would be in grave danger to neglect them, to see them clouded by our shame. And Christ died outside the city and so we go to him outside the city and we bear his shame with him. Let's pray.